I am Connor McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. Give metalurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast, to our knowledge, that goes into that wonderful 1986 classic Highlander, scene by scene. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by my kinsman, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, I am absolutely delighted to be here. And I'm equally delighted to say that for this episode, uh, we are joined by the wonderful Miss Sarah Johnson. Oh, it's lovely to be here again. Can't wait to do it. Aww. Well, thank you for coming back. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love doing this. I even managed to pick up some followers. I had a very nice uh, uh, follower start following me on Twitter simply because I've been on the, the Another Time of Cloud podcast. That was very nice. Oh, lovely. Oh, that's great. I'm sure they're enjoying me, my, my ranting at the government. So, <laughs> shall that be fun for everyone? <laughs> well, I certainly enjoy that. So um, I'm trying to crowbar some of that into this episode. It's going to be tough, but I think we can manage it. We can, we can. Well, um, and today we're going to be talking about uh, an episode that's been in the offing, well, as all episodes have, but it's been in the offing for a while. The um the start of the date between Heather, sorry, between Heather, the start of the date between Connor and Brenda. <laughs> Well, it is a bit of a, there is a cascade now of, of romance, isn't there? I'm, I'm putting romance in, in, I'm doing air quotes in the air because we have all the supreme awkwardness of Brenda. Luckily, we do kind of get to finish it and the next sections will be a little bit, little bit better, I think. Yes, we're, we're going to have, um, is it the world's worst date? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it's the world's oddest date, but uh, what's the time code for this one, Rob? Yes, the, well, the time code for this episode will be uh, an hour and three minutes and 40 seconds to an hour and five minutes and 37 seconds. We are well into this film now. Yeah, yeah we are. Well, <laughs> to, uh, to set the tone for the date that is to follow, the opening shot of this is uh, Brenda with the revolver, with the, uh, with the snub nose. Yeah, loading it and putting it. I did think that the name of this, this episode should be, uh, you know, Brenda in brackets, Janie's got a gun. Because so <laughs> mm. <laughs> that is how it starts. <laughs> and a tape recorder. Yes, yeah. That shot, um, just holding the snub nose, I've recently rewatched The Godfather, and it's very Michael in the basement before he goes to kill Salozzo. <laughs> yeah. But especially with, like, the yellow background. The only difference is there's no tape on it. There's no tape on the grip, and he's n- she's not about to receive a lesson from... Uh, <laughs> From Clemenza. I don't know. It'd go down very differently, I think, if it was Brenda. (laughs) It is a strange shot, isn't it? It's very... It it looks... In fact, this whole little sequence reminds me of kind of Starsky and Hutch or sort of 70s and 80s, you know, cop shows. It's very strange. See the gun? See me load the gun. Just a minute! Um, And it's not early enough in it to be Chekhov's gun. So. No, that's right. It's um, yes, and see me press record on the tape recorder, even though it's not going to be. Yes, and anybody who's used one of those recorders is like, don't put it in a box. Oh no, she's not going to record anything now. <laughs> don't put it in the music box. You're not going to hear <laughs> anything. Yeah, they did not have a good microphone on them. Those particular tape recorders. No. Why is she recording him? Well, this is this is the other thing. Like, what does she want from this? I mean, sorry, it's clear what she wants from it, but why does she need to get that recorded? I do find it odd. She's not, and you know, we have the well, we have the kind of he comes, so he comes in. You see her putting the gun 
you see here getting the terrible tape recorder in the music box, uh, which is how I like to start every every dinner date, actually, to be <laughs> honest, that I've prepared for. I like to hide a weapon somewhere in the house and I like to have a recording device. It's just how I roll. <laughs> but, um, you know, and we get that kind of low key jazz slow version of Queen's One Year of Love tinkling in the background. Oh, romance as she hides murderous weapons and recording devices. You know, he kind, of, he kind of comes in and hovers about on the door. She opens the door to him. He's like hovering around awkwardly. It's all very weird. It is very weird. But there's so much about this that I think is really, really reflective of 80s cinema. So one, and even the gun and the tape recorder, it's like, well, she's a forensics consultant. She's investigating. So therefore we need to remind people that she's investigating this guy as well as having this date. Yeah. Um, that he suggested and he suggested that she cook for him. But also when he turns up on the doorstep, that moment of being stunned at how cool your date looks and then them saying, are you going to ask me in? Good evening. Do you want to dine in the hall or shall we step inside? Come in. That's in other films from the 80s as well. I was watching dressed to kill the other day and there's a scene in that with nancy allen who plays this cool girl and yeah her, john does the exact same thing where he just goes oh you're kidding and she says yeah you're gonna ask me in or we're just gonna do it here well hi i'm liz from the escort service you're kidding <laughs> it's me well i am yeah i'm glad to meet you <laughs> Well, are you going to pop me dry here or invite me in? Oh, I'm sorry. Come in. And it's like, okay, so this is... It is, a, it is a well-known trope, but it tends to be used in thrillers and horror films as opposed to romantic comedies. That's one of the things I really kind of like about the scene in this in an odd way. It is like watching a sort of De Palma, weird sort of De Palma thriller kind of odd. Do you know what I mean? It's all a bit, bit suspicious. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's this cat and mouse vibe to it. Yeah, it is like a cat and mouse vibe to it. It's the, I mean, even because this scene that we'll be talking about today is basically she's getting ready in the other room and he just immediately knows what she's done. So he finds the gun, he finds the tape recorder, he sees the yeah. bed so is outside staking her apartment out. And yeah, it's like there's not actually any kind of a date going on here. It's this weird kind of chess game they're playing. Well, not at all. I mean, I do have in my notes. I wonder what Brenda cooked for dinner. <laughs> yes. What did she ask him? You know, there's no food being. I just, yeah, that's true. It's very strange. You know, you're like, is he turning up there to have sex? She doesn't look like she's had dinner. I mean, you know, we've all had dates like that. You know, we're all adults, but I don't think that's the vibe that we're getting from them. And also, yeah, he's refusing right. to take his coat off when he comes in. It's kind of. <laughs> yeah, take your coat. No, thanks. What? I'll hold on to it. What? It's like, yeah, is he is he carrying the sword? Yeah, exactly. It's like, is he going to show his sword? Is, is a bit on the nose, really, isn't it? So, I mean, really, that should be that, the subtextual subtitle for all of, of Highlander, is he going to show her his sword? So. Yeah, if you show me your gun, I'll show you my sword. Yeah, he he won't he won't take the he won't take the trench coat off because he's not ready to show her his sword yet. Exactly. There's a whole reading you could think actually. You could read a whole thing into this that she is desperate to get hold of his <laughs> once in a generation one of a kind weapon, and that's what her pursuit of him is. And eventually, he gives it to her. So, <laughs> but he needs it back to save the world. So. 
I mean, what, what else do you expect from the author of a metallurgical history of ancient sword making? Well, exactly. It's uh, titles like that that just trip off the tongue. And just, you know, I did think actually her fancy apartment. It's interesting, isn't it? Her apartment is full of um, antiques and old stuff. Very, you know, aside from the amusing uh, Scottish Highlander portrait in the hallway that McLeod kind of laugh, laughs at, la- laughing in inverted commas, kind of grimaces at. Lambert does that wonderful little eyebrow kind of... Sardonic. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Weird thing. <laughs> Like, did she buy all this really old, expensive stuff with the proceeds from her uh, giant book about the metallurgical history of sword making? It's exactly what I've got in my notes, because it's like, presumably, either a metallurgical history of ancient sword making was doing Stephen King level sales, or consultancy for the MYA police department pays really, really well, because that is an amazing apartment she's got. And with an amazing view, as she says. She's got a lot of expensive stuff. Well, her dad was uh, an American Air Force, was a a colonel, right? So it's potentially like she's... Oh, you think it's inherited money? Yeah, I mean, like she could be, like this could be whatever's left of his pension. I'm I'm assuming that he's died since. Yeah, so so this this could kind of be, Maybe Brenda killed him. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Saw the. Um, it's a whole very different film to be made out of this. Yeah, saw the cost of all the fine art that she was buying because it is a really well set decorated apartment. This, I mean, there is a lot of things in there that say, I can just absolutely imagine this is where Brenda would live because you have antiques in there, but there's fine art on the wall. There's. Um, wildlife paintings on the walls there's lots of well you've got the um you've got the swords in the hallway that's right there's samurai swords in the hallway yeah the big cutlasses and i've been trying they're not referenced in the script i've been trying to identify them in terms of what they're they look like big um caresses or cutlasses don't they they look like um they might be i, I don't know I was, I was trying to work out if they were middle eastern or early kind of uh, more genghis khan because they're big old cutlasses big sort of you know slice you in half kind of things yeah the well the two on the two on the bottom the closest i've been able to find them is uh the is the falcata which were used by ancient greeks okay right ah. but, uh, but equally the handle on the bottom one also seems a bit like a photo i saw of a tolwa which is uh, that's a hindi word um yeah that's right but but in both cases, like the blades are massive; they're just incredibly wide. Right. Yeah. Like they look less like you know swords, like they are curved blades, and more like you'd expect, you know, like like saws, like hand saws. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. um, for chopping down trees. Yeah, I think they are cool. Aren't they? They're designed for combat on a horse, like caresses or something that that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, because she also has um, samurai swords, doesn't she, on the stand as well? She has the she has the katana, and then. Then the smaller sword, I can't remember the name of it. But uh, so, so I don't know why she needs a gun because she's got an armory in her apartment. It's bristling <laughs> with weaponry, isn't it? Yeah. It's a nice bit of set dressing to give you her character, definitely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Apparently, though, she's only been in the flat for three months, and <laughs> and you hear what she says afterwards because she she says, "I've only been here for three months. I'm still clearing it up." <laughs> I like your place, Brenda. And it's like, if that's your flat half done, then can you come around and arrange my flat? Because that is an amazingly well-designed and decorated flat. It's like if you saw it afterwards, it's, it's, it's been stripped of all the old stuff and turned into a typical 80s hmm. sort of yeah. <laughs> pad. <laughs> she, brought, she brought it from an ancient weapons freak. This all belonged to the previous owner. She's one of those people who's like, oh, I'm really sorry the place is a bit of a mess and it's absolutely impeccable. <laughs> she literally is. <laughs> Yes. But uh, but I'm wondering if if she's there because you know the place that she was living previously she's trying to get away from a bad boyfriend a bad ex 
Because she clearly has, not putting the blame entirely on her for this, she clearly has odd taste in men. Absolutely. She likes a man who kind of behaves like a stalker towards her. She likes a man who does not blink. Yes, and looks at her intently for far too awkwardly long each time. I need a man who won't take off his coat. Yes, everyone loves that. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the shot when she opens the door and you get that shot of Christopher Lambert smiling, uh, Russell Mulcahy on the audio commentary said that at the Paris premiere of the film, at that shot, the French audience just rose to their feet and went absolutely crazy because <laughs> here was this French actor who had crossed the pond and just made it really, really big. And it was like this this kind of like, yes, one of ours has done really, really well. And look at that shot. It's, just, it's an amazing shot. And yeah, he said that it was like being at a Rolling Stones concert for a minute because they'd all just stood up and started to applaud. So well, that's quite nice. Oh, Mortal Kombat, they must have lost their freaking minds. Yeah. Raven! <laughs> <laughs> that is the one little glimmer of light in that film. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've got the, the soundtrack. I've got a soft spot for some of the soundtracks. You have a good heart. He's so wonderfully, especially as he's going around and he's, you know, he opens the little drawer and he's got the gun in there and it opens the box. He's got the tape recorder in there and he's conducting this conversation. It's all very droll, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. He's conducting this conversation with Brenda, who's in the other room and doesn't know that he's, he's found this all out. And he's so self-amused he's so smug so like and and because he's you know he's always has that intense stare as default it does play so much like a serial killer yeah 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 it, it's weird it it plays as if he's kind of up to no good i think it's one of those things where has christopher lambert ever played a bad guy because i was watching this thinking what he's doing is creepy but there's something about the actor that's just so likable and cuddly that it's not coming across as really scary even though it could easily have done if it was played by anyone else. just I just can't imagine him playing a bad guy. I'm trying to think, actually. He must have done, surely. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think he's he's in the Ghost Rider sequel, and I think he's a bad guy in the Ghost Rider sequel. Oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. Isn't he there? There's that chess film where you're not sure. Oh, no, is he the hero in that? I can't remember. There's a chess film, isn't there? Yeah, it's, is it called Night Moves, but it's Night with a K? Yes, Night Moves, that's it. Yeah. Um, and you, it's, it's very similar to Highlander in that he's all kind of brooding and staring and a bit weird. And you're like, oh, is he the bad guy? Oh, no, he's supposed to be the hero. Okay. Yeah, there's, <laughs> it's like a Hitchcockian thing of Cary Grant. Is he Russian as well in that? I can one of his, what accent are you? <laughs> all I remember... Um, about that film was that it stars his then wife Diane Lane yeah. and they got divorced yes, shortly right. afterwards and I then saw him on um, on a breakfast show he was talking about like another film but he just got divorced and they had had the easiest the nicest and most civil divorce in Hollywood history and everyone was talking about it about how Aww. how much they really loved each other still and, and didn't like want to make each other a unhappy so therefore they said no we don't want to you know sue them for everything they've got we just want to still be friends after this and um yeah so again i I can't imagine him playing a bad guy (laughs) he's supposed to be a really nice guy actually isn't he he's supposed to be a sweetie yeah, indeed, that's right. So I just can't imagine him playing a bad guy. But I will have to check out the sequel to Ghost Rider. And actually, weirdly, so I've just I've just realised, obviously, my having mentioned The Godfather earlier in this pod, he was the lead in The Sicilian. Yes, he was, that's right. Yes, that's... Yeah, oh yeah, he was. I suppose he plays... Well, he's like an anti-hero in that, isn't he? That's not the best film in the world. Yeah, that's right. That's the Michael Cimino one, isn't it? Yes. 
I'm sure that in some way he's a kind of anti-hero as well. I mean, he does do that that kind of morally grey character. I mean, and I think that slightly bleeds in. I mean, he's the out-and-out hero of Highlander, but you wouldn't know it to begin with. And one of the things that makes the film nicely sort of off-centre is is his performance that's a little bit, I don't know, kind of not not traditionally heroic. That's why it's going to be interesting to see what they do with the remake, because... I think it needs that weirdness at the centre of it. Yes, it needs someone that you believe has been alive for hundreds of years and yeah. has got lots and lots of memories crowding in his mind. Yeah, lots of weapons and, you know, not always very good at humaning. Yes, that's right. Um, but yes, so she gets, he gets invited in and then Brenda has to go and spend the longest time anybody he's ever spent ever putting some earrings on. Where are you going? I forgot my earrings. Oh. <laughs> Which, to be fair, they are giant 80s earrings, so you can see why it would take a while. Absolutely, they are massive. I mean, I think it's it's a testament to Roxanne Hart's performance in this scene and also the continuation that we're going to talk about in the next episode that you don't really notice how ridiculous her earrings are until towards the very end of the sequence. It's like... And she's wearing like a sort of... They're huge. She's wearing a sparkly green. She's wearing like a, really it's kind of like a child's party top as well. I know it's the 80s, but it's a little bit like, really? Really? Well, that's interesting because, again, on the audio commentary, Russell Mulgahi said that they had to shoot this scene twice. So they shot the entire scene. It was all done. Then they watched the dailies and said everyone hated the dress that she was wearing and said it looked really, really bad. But he doesn't, ah. he doesn't describe what it looked like. He just said that everyone hated the dress and said that her dress looks awful. So then they went and just did the whole thing again, but with her in a different costume. Um, Blouse and skirt. Yeah, and he said it actually it could have worked out better because the first time they did it, the blocking was yeah, not very interesting and it kind of ended up with them sitting on the couch and talking. Um, whereas this one is, it's much more dynamic. But again, that yeah, it's meant to be all spiky and confrontational, I guess. It is, and it's but um, but why? <laughs> yeah, well, this is like... it. It's like why is she? In, I've got in my notes. Why is she inviting the chief suspect in a murder investigation, quite a violent murder investigation, while there's this kind of ongoing fear in in New York City of a guy going around chopping people's heads off? Why is she inviting? Well, um, clearly with no police input. Um, you know, the, one of the suspects in this to her house for dinner because he asked her to very creepily by asking if she cooked. It's all a bit odd. Well, we find that out, but we'll talk about that in the next episode because that's when they have that big confrontation. But yeah. again, it doesn't really add up. It's There's a lot of things in this that are like, she invites him round because there is a romantic element to this film and this is the point where they really need... We will now, now commence... <laughs> Romance commencing, right. commencing romance, romance commencing now. We, we just had, you know, off the back of your, your previous podcast with the uh, you refuse to let anyone love you kind of thing, which <laughs> everyone's a bit like, huh? At that point in the film, really? That's not what I'm getting from him at all. But anyway, and then, you know, you go into this, oh, okay, so romance begins. And we do go in now to the kind of romance, the sort of heart, romantic heart of the film through these next two episodes, I guess, into what then comes after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think that as well, in terms of the kind of narrative and the way it was filmed, well, we, we obviously do have to say she's probably not working. You know, the policeman's probably parked outside her apartment just to observe because he's following Nash, not because she's working on a sting. But it just seems a missed opportunity. She goes into the bedroom, put her rings on, give herself a pep talk. And, like, you know, if she, we hadn't seen her put the tape recorder in the music box, this should be where she's checking the wire she's wearing or something like that. Yeah, and it's... It, it doesn't make any sense that she leaves him to wander about if she wasn't going to do something. Like, you know, when you watch it the first time, and even watching it back recently, 
with my son, you do think that, that that should be the bit where she's going to do something, in, you know, that she wants hidden from him, which is why. But no, she's just going to put her earrings on and give herself a pep talk. Mm. Do you know what you're doing? And, and that's the thing, like, she's all left this to rather last minute before him kind of turning up. I mean, presuming, of course, that, you know, whether or not she has actually been cooking dinner or... Um... Do, you, do you think she was there going, is it a date? Is this a is this a day? And then after a while, do you know, this is not a day. I'm just going to put a loaded gun in my small <laughs> file uh, on top of the desk and I'm going to put a tape recorder in the music box just in case it's not a date and he is actually a serial killer. I sure hope he tries to murder me in the living room. Yes, because yes, then right. everything, there'll be at least an alibi. <laughs> or the hallway, because then I can just throw swords at him. But um... Yeah, not an alibi, evidence, I should say. At least there'll be evidence <laughs> that they know. Yeah, it's very weird. But it's funny that you say about the about it being a sting operation because I always misremember this scene as that she does know that the cop's out there, that Bedso is out there, but she doesn't. Um, no, she doesn't. And it's odd that they didn't do that because the all point, yeah, that bit when she's putting on her earrings in the bathroom is like, well, that's the perfect time for her to say, yeah, can you hear me? And for him to say, yes, yeah. yes, it's fine. Just let us know if he gets... We'll keep you safe. You Absolutely. Know. But the thing is, Bedso doesn't need to be outside at all. There's no payoff from the uh, the police side of the narrative. And Connor's already got a reason to get pissed off with her. Well, sorry, there's already the reason for the conflict between her and Connor because he gives her a copy of her book. So him being in the car outside serves absolutely no purpose. Yeah. Well, it does in a way, Rob, sorry. But it's for the police. So then you realise the police are following Brenda, aren't they? Not him. Because they have, you have that scene back at the headquarters where he said, oh, our little Brenda was at Nash's place. So I'm standing there and there's Brenda. Our little Brenda. You sure it was Brenda? She was in Nash's shop, she was talking to him. So actually, you could say, well, the police are actually there because they're trying to figure out what she's doing because she could compromise the That's case, right, yeah. basically. Not, you know, not that we get this explained to us, this all kind of falls away. But what case? They don't have a case. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. They, they've, they've let him go, no. there's been no follow-up. But this is actually the payoff to that scene that we talked about a couple of episodes, Rob, the really weird kind of incidental scene of um, Bedso and Moran just talking in that room. And it's like, yeah, this is that, just yeah. to show that there was a continuation of that moment. But yeah, it really is one of those things where this film, which is a wonderful film, it really pays lip service at the very most to the police investigation. It's like, yeah, we should probably have a cop outside because we did say in that previous one that, that she'd been seen with him. So we should kind of follow that up for at least one more scene. The police don't need to be in it at all after the interrogation scene. I'm really glad they are. You know, I love, love Alan North, love John Polito. Yeah. Well, there's some great character work, isn't there? And yeah, but narratively speaking, they serve no purpose. No, <laughs> no purpose, it's true. It is, it is, literally all, the, the police officer, the cop in the car is only out there so Connor gets to make his, his joke about interesting view. <laughs> That's the only reason. It's a, and, uh, you know, lifting the lid of the music box to speak very closely. Uh, anybody who does sound recording, any podcaster is wincing. So yes. it's going to blow out her sound levels as he leans in going in. I said interesting view. <laughs> you bastard. Interesting view. What did you say? I said, interesting view. <laughs> but then I want to go back to, is it meant to show us, I mean, does he, is it immortal powers that mean he, I mean, he goes, he makes a beeline straight for the gun, straight for the recorder. He, how does he know that? So, and, I, and you kind of think, well, are they trying to show us that he, because they do hint at extrasensory powers, all the stuff with the, the deer with Ramirez, you know, stuff later on at the zoo with him glaring at the, the lions. Is there other stuff 
beyond not getting killed and being really good at sword fighting. Yes, it's the it's the it's the immortal power of knowing when a woman has put contingencies in place. Has yeah. put a gun exactly. Has hidden a gun in a recording device a, on a date well, with you. That's a really that's a really creepy fucking power. That that's a, it's not. A... I, I'd love them to do something though. Like if they're going to do the remake, I'd love it if there was. I'm trying to know what the film is where there's somebody. I've seen so many sci-fi and high-concept films, but there's somebody who can sense technology because they can hear it, they can hear it buzzing. And I'd love it if it was something like, you know, do something like that with it. If you're going to just have him go to find these things to make a sort of make light of it and make jokes because he, you know, to show that it's none of this is sincere and they're both there under false pretenses. He to, I don't know, threaten her or tell her he's got her book. I mean, if he wants it signed, <laughs> surely there's easier ways to do it. Um, and her to find out about the sword, you know, we'll find in the next episode, to find out what she really wants. But it's just, I wish there was something else to hit other than just a joke to hear him immediately going to them. It would it would have been interesting if they had. I was thinking about that because I was thinking, well, the only way, I didn't actually think of it in terms of a supernatural thing, but more of a, has he been in this situation before? But we know that he hasn't romantically because he hasn't yeah, had anyone since Heather, no matter what the sequels say. But... um. So it's like, has he, was he a spy or something before? And he just knew where people would put <laughs> guns and recording devices. So, because it's like he does, as he said, he just makes a beeline for it. And it's like thinking, well, yeah, this can't be his first rodeo with this situation. Yeah, there's no, he doesn't sort of search for an apartment. He doesn't look, you know, that, I think, I don't know, it's just a, I, I just think it's a bit of sort of, there's no time for it, you know. <laughs> It's a shame, though. It would have been good if he at least he pretended to look around, or something. maybe there was a bit and it got cut out. I don't know. No, but it, it's, it, it, so it just seems odd that he. It makes it seem like either he was already watching her, so he knew she'd done that already, or it, he just seems to go straight through. And it's not like it's an obvious thing for people to do. Maybe it is for him. I don't know. Maybe all his dates have this. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Again, it's like one of those things where it's a date, but there's no romance to this at all. It's all, not at all. It's you know. It's all kind of cat and mouse chess games, um, you know, mind games, and yeah, but quite sort of unpleasant. It's like him at the beginning where he's standing in the doorway. I'm honestly reminds me of Francis Dolorai standing in the doorway in Manhunter, where he says Francis is gone. Francis is. It's literally done like that. It's this kind of looming shape in the doorway hmm. with his trench coat on. I didn't get that. I have to admit, I got more of like a. Actually, I I, I did get a bit of a kind of 80s romance from that. I got, you know, St Elmo's fire or something when you open up the door and there's the guy there with that wry smile on his face, completely dashing. And yeah. I thought, yeah, that's kind of, that's a very 80s rom-com or rom-dram shot for a date that then just immediately turns, well, it was already opened up with a gun um, and then turns into mind games and uh, <laughs> you know, psychological outmanoeuvring. <laughs> so actually, like any... Yeah. Any date I've been on, really? No. Oh, surely they <laughs> I do also wonder: do do immortals have to be invited in like vampires? That's the other thing I, I wondered. Oh, that's great. Well, no, no. because <laughs> Kurgan storms into her apartment later on. Yeah, that's true. Does he? Yeah, when he kidnaps her. Yeah, that bit that is very cool. It's all done in red light, isn't it, and stuff? Oh, okay. I do not remember that at all. I remember her being in the car, but um, oh, okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. So yeah, the. Uh, the, the romantic interlude. <laughs> There's a man rifles through your house rather than making himself a drink. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I know that you know we, we we don't find this out till the next episode. But he's he's brought the um he's brought the book with him and he's brought the the brandy with him. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I'll save this for the next episode. But who the fuck brings brandy to a date? <laughs> well, I guess if it's two hundred year old brandy that would potentially be worth about a quarter of a million, then I suppose it's quite a good impressive thing to bring to a date. Yeah, that's. I'd say that's the only reason why, but it's... So he can, so he can do the Jim Steinman... Um... That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Although, actually, to throw back to previous episodes, he's probably brought it, because when he first stalked Brenda at the bar, she has a, a large brandy. That's probably why he's bought brandy. Ah. That is a good callback and very well remembered, yeah. Yes. Hey, Brenda. Usual? Lots of it. Oh. Well, that the, the low-key piano jazz version of the Queen song is the same Queen song that's playing in the bar when they first meet, and then that I think then that motif becomes kind of the love theme, uh, if you can call it that, of Highlander as well. So I, I did like the use of sound in the film was very interesting, as you'd expect from a, a video a music video director. And, um, but it is really I, I like the way they use that. I like the way that they use the kind of soundtracking to show us things. So yeah. they're building a romance even out of stalkery interactions, whether we like it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is romantic. Oh, damn it. Honestly. <laughs> oh, I'm looking through. Is there any... I've got nothing else in my notes for this one. No, I think that's it for me. Yeah, I do think it ends in a good... You know, I think we're heading off, as I said, with him him snarking about the interesting view very loudly into a, into a recording device, which, you know, dovetails neatly into podcasting. Yes, it's... Uh... I, this um, So this particular bit that we're talking about does end with the shot of her looking in the mirror, uh, but she's reflected about three or four times because there's because there are multiple mirrors. And, yeah. of course, mirrors always mean, like, duplicity or, Duality. like, another side. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, Hidden intentions. Whereas I think for that moment, yeah, for that moment, I think it's just a cool shot, but there's much more mirror work that we'll talk about in the next episode that I think does go into duplicity and dual intentions absolutely okay well i guess yeah in which case um sarah thank you very much for coming on my pleasure i'm very glad to say that you'll be joining us for the next episode where things just get worse <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for those lovebirds <laughs> the date does not improve it does not um if we are if uh, we were looking for you online where would we find you you can find me uh on twitter as strapping lass excellent and Mr. Daniel. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel and my writing at filmstories.co.uk, lovehorror.co.uk, electric-shadows.com. Uh, we also do another podcast called The Movie Robcast in which Rob and I talk about film more generally. And you can find that on Twitter at Movie Robcast and you can listen to it wherever you're listening to this. Excellent. And uh, yeah, if you want to follow me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. Uh, you can also find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you want to follow this podcast, you can do so on Twitter at McLeod Time, or you can drop us an email at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. And yeah, we would love to hear from you if you've got any Highlander related stories, if you are, if you fancy coming on the pod, if you've got any feedback, uh, on which note, of course, um, if you've enjoyed this, or even if you haven't, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing, it is very much appreciated, and it does make a difference. Well... In which case, I guess, until next time, all there's left to say is... Another time, McLeod! Another time, McLeod!